For the week of Wednesday, September 19th, 2018, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, we talk with veteran White House correspondent April Ryan. Her new book, Under Fire, talks about her tumultuous tenure covering the Trump administration. At the end of the day, Ryan stands proudly by her work and by her profession. Being a member of the press is one of these most patriotic things you can do. Being a member of the honest press, not being swayed being a liberal or conservative, but just giving you the facts. And that's what I try to do. Also, we talk about the role of art as it impacts our politics and our discourse with Cleo Barnett. She is deputy director of Amplifier Art, a Seattle-based nonprofit that commissions original artwork aimed at amplifying the message of grassroots causes or movements. Plus, we have our weekly calls to action with Indivisible Washington 8th Research Team Leader Stephen Wilhelm. That's all coming up, so stay with us. Every administration has had a sometimes uneasy relationship with the press, but no other White House has been as overtly hostile and even threatening to the journalists who cover it than the Trump administration. And few journalists have experienced this more intensely than April Ryan. Ryan is a 21-year veteran White House reporter for American Urban Radio Network. She is also a contributor for CNN and was named Journalist of the Year by the National Association for Black Journalists in 2017. In a recent book, under fire. She talks about her intention to never become part of the story she covers. But since the beginning of the Trump administration, that very thing has happened to her and on more than one occasion. So I started our discussion by asking her about one of those instances in which Ryan, during Trump's very first press conference, asked him about his campaign promise to help inner cities. So we're going to do a lot of work on the inner cities. I have great people lined up to help with the inner cities. Well, when, okay? you say, when you say the inner cities, are you, going to, are you going to include the CBC, Mr. President? in your conversations with your, your urban agenda, your inner city agenda, as well as... Am I going to include Are who? you going to include the Congressional Black Caucus and the Congressional Well, Hispanic I would. Caucus, I tell you what. Do you want to well set up the, the meeting? Do you want to set up the meeting? No, no, no. I'm, Are they I'm, friends I'm, of I'm yours? I'm just a reporter. No, get a, set up the I meeting. I know some of them, but I'm sure Let's they're Let's go set up right a meeting. Now. I would love to meet with the Black Caucus. I think it's great, the Congressional Black Caucus. I think it's great. I asked Ryan if she had a sense in that moment that she was becoming part of the story. I knew... Something wasn't right. And um, in the moment, you don't think about being a story. You just, I was saying, oh my God, no, I can't do that. Um, you know, I can't set up the meeting. They're not my friends. And I didn't look at it as racial. I looked at it more sinister because I had had a fight uh, a week and a half prior to with someone who was lying on me, uh, saying things that about me that um, weren't true, you know, saying that I was on the take with Hillary Clinton, which is a lie. Um, and you're you're talking about uh, Amarosa Manigault Newman, uh, who you talk about in the book as somebody that you had a, a falling out with. Yes, and she had at that time she had the ear. She was very close to the president, and um, so when he said, "Are they your friends? Can you set up a meeting?" I felt it was more sinister than it was racial because I felt like um, they were both trying to say that I'm going to take with the Democrats. So that's where. I was thinking, and it just, you know, when you're in the middle of something like that, you're in, in front of the world, and this is happening, you kind of just want to fade into oblivion. You're like, oh my God, it's like, no, that's not what's happening. You're just trying to keep your wits about you and just get the answer and then sit down. Um, but in the midst of all of that, I was thinking about what he could have been, you know, that this was put in his head, you know, um, and I cannot set up a meeting. That is not my job. So I didn't have much time to think. Beyond that, you know, in those few moments, 
uh, which seemed like years. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, in, in another instance, and this was after Charlottesville, you actually asked Trump directly if he's a racist. And you say in your book that you have a barometer for what everybody is thinking in the room, but maybe won't ask. And, and I'm wondering, is that where that question came from? Well, you have to remember, it wasn't just after Charlottesville. Just a week or a few days prior to that, guess what he was saying, or uh, congressional youths who were in the room saying that he said. he They were saying that he said that uh, calling African or brown and, and black nations assholes. Yeah, right. And then Norway was fine. You know, the immigrants from Norway were fine, but people from black and brown nations were asshole nations. So that was the immediate piece. And then you had Charlottesville, you had other things going on. But that's, you know, people were saying that he was a racist. So I had to figure out what was going on. What You know, really, what was the issue? And there were a lot of issues going on. Um, but I had to figure out, you know, and that's a, that's a strong label to put on someone. I had to find out if indeed that that was the case. You know, and I asked leaders, you know, uh, black leaders and white leaders, you know, what is the definition of a racist? And um, they said, you know, I talked to the NAACP, and the NAACP said a racist um, definition, and it's so simple. The definition is someone, um, no, the intersection, excuse me, where power and prejudice meet. And so that's the definition of a racist. So I got all that information prior to the day that I asked that question. And I was not only sure I asked that question until I finally asked it. Well, it was an extraordinary question to ask. And uh, like I say, it's one that was on the mind of everyone at that time. And uh, it's a question that I think many people have uh, drawn conclusions on since, but uh, a pretty remarkable moment in White House journalism. And, you know, I want to ask about Trump's assault on journalism generally. Uh, You yourself have received death threats. You have had to hire a bodyguard. Uh, Trump has created just an enormously threatening environment for journalists in our country. He has labeled them enemies of the state. Is this something that you ever thought that you would see in 2018, where American journalists are fearing for their safety just for covering the presidency? No, I never thought I'd see anything like that in 2018. Um, you know, I still stand on our founding fathers, what they said, freedom of the press, um, the First Amendment. I still stand on that. I still stand on it. And um, this is unprecedented. Well, you know, I know that you're someone who's not afraid of a fight. Uh, you, you talk in your book about your uh, your Aunt Pearl, uh, who says that yeah. the best way to deal with bullies is you, you punch them once and then they'll leave you alone. Get them one good time and they'll leave you alone. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I'm wondering, you're a contributor to CNN, which has been the subject of Trump's near constant attacks. Do you feel like CNN and the New York Times and other outlets should be pushing back harder against Trump's attacks? Oh, CNN definitely pushes back. There are things that happen that the average public doesn't see. Are, are you able to give um, us any sorts of examples? I can't. I, I'm not getting into that. Okay. I can speak for myself. And what I will tell you is, um, from my standpoint, is that a lot of these organizations are fighting back by talking and, and, and talking to the principals about this and, and, and really fighting in different ways. But it's, it's, this is not just a one-moment fight. This is a fight that's going to keep going and going. It's not just for the today, next week. There are things happening behind the scenes, you know, from leaders of these companies and organizations. They're talking to 
um, the press people and the principals about what's happening. And each side is dug in in various ways. Well, you know, that brings up some larger questions uh, just about the state of journalism generally. And uh, this is a big question, but what, what in your mind do you feel that we need to do as a country to return us to a place where journalism is, is valued and trusted again? Exactly with this podcast and with others and with other people, we need to really sit down and have this conversation. I think sometimes listening to what's going on out here, people fell asleep in civics and history and government classes, and they just don't understand the process. And they want to attack something that, and they talk about they're patriotic and they're, they're patriots, and they don't realize that being a member of the press is one of the most patriotic things you can do. Being a member of the honest press, not being swayed, being a liberal or conservative, but just giving you the facts. And that's what I try to do. And I think people need to really be aware before they start attacking. And I think talking about it, having an honest discussion with the facts and take the emotion out of it, we can work out something. Yeah, you know, there is news out here that that, that is swayed, that is biased. But I'm not trying to operate in that vein. I work, and I'm not an advocate journalist, but we need to really f- figure out how to move forward because we're, we're in a crisis state. When you have a president of the United States saying, that, you know, we're the enemy of the people, and people are listening, something's wrong. Yeah. So I think we need, the way we fix this, and freedom of the press, we need to have an honest discussion. And where that discussion happens, or who gives it, I don't know. But something needs to happen. And I'm in a profession that I love, and I'm not leaving my job. I have too many people who count on me to get the answers for me to leave my job. Well, it's a, it's a very critical time for you to be doing your job. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to get your take on some of the news stories that come out of this White House. Uh, and we, a lot of them are in my book. A lot, a lot of those news stories yes. that, are, that come out of the White House, why I get in trouble, why I'm on the blacklist, come from my book. Undefined, yes. Well, you know, since you mentioned the White House blacklist, did, tell us what that means and uh, how it affects your ability to get access and do your job. They they don't call on me. They treat me foully. They they are rude. They're whatever to me. But I'm going to continue to do my job. See, the great thing about covering four presidents being there for 21 years, I have a keen understanding as to what's going on, who knows what, and I can reach. I don't necessarily have to reach in the White House. I can talk to people who are in the White House or outside of the White House who are close to the president and can get information. Right. And a lot of times people go on what is called background, which means they're anonymous sources. Uh, People are clearly afraid for their careers. But in your mind, I'm wondering, does the fact that these officials won't go on the record, does that somehow affect the impact of these news stories? No. um, You have people who won't go on the record, but you also have people who will. And you research a story and research a story, you'll find that the corroborating information of people who are saying the same thing. You can get a story. If you really want a story, you can get a story. Well, this is fascinating to me. Talk about that process of how you cultivate sources, either ones who will or or won't go on the record for a story. It's about, first of all, being a reporter in Washington is about relationships. Having a relationship with the principals or relationships with sources. And they trust you enough to give you information that can point you in the right direction, or you can find the direction to go to um, with a certain uh, story or a certain subject. And nine times out of ten, you'll get 
information that more people corroborate, even if you don't get them on the record, that you can substantiate and say, this is the right story. This story is I'm going down the right path. Um, you have to have enough instincts to know when it's false or when it's where they're trying to sway you because everyone has an agenda and you have to make sure it's not about swaying you. And, and, and if you just put the facts on the table, the rest will come. Well, the facts are certainly on the table in your new book, which is called Under Fire, published by Roman and Littlefield. April Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Sorry for being tardy. We had a press conference. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Duty calls. Thanks. So as most of you who know me can attest, I am a huge fan of art. I love art because I feel like it has the ability to bring about profound changes in the way that we see the world. And I also feel like it has the potential to impact our political discourse. If you have any doubt on the matter, I'd say check out Picasso's Guernica or Diego Rivera's murals of the labor movement or even Norman Rockwell's portrait of a young African-American girl being escorted by U.S. Marshals to an all-white school. Or you may be familiar with the work of Amplifier Art. Amplifier is a Seattle-based design lab that has become a globally recognized art and social justice organization that creates and distributes pieces specifically designed to amplify grassroots movements. And just this week, they have officially launched a campaign called We the Future, which is aimed at educating students about social justice through art. I spoke with Amplifier's deputy director, Cleo Barnett, and I asked her to talk about how the organization got started. So it really began with the founder, Aaron Huey, um, his work with National Geographic magazine, and he wanted to reach beyond the viewership of National Geographic and bring messages into the public space. Um, So he collaborated with a long-term friend of his, Shepard Ferry, on turning his photographs into political artwork and then doing large-scale public art campaigns with that artwork. And then the artwork ended up really becoming a tool for popular education. So on the bottom of all of the artworks, there was hashtags or there was websites. And so the artwork ended up pointing people towards more information of how they can get more depth and knowledge about these different issue areas. Um, So at a very um, basic level, that is how our organization still works is we want to create visual art campaigns to take something very complex, something very layered and often rooted in a lot of historical trauma. And then we want to distill that complexity into a really beautiful visual graphic that's very simple and easy to read Um, but then give you an entry point to dive deeper into that dialogue or dive deeper into that conversation or provide you with tools to take action within your own community through this artwork. Yeah, and actually I should mention Shepard Ferry is best known for his Obama Hope poster. So if people are wondering why that name rings Mm -hmm. a bell, that's it. And so just to kind of boil down the way that you currently work as an organization, uh, according to your website, Amplifier commissions work from artists that is targeted to help amplify grassroots causes or movements. And in the recent past, you have done work for the Women's March and the March for Our Lives. How do you select the causes or movements that you you like to get involved with? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, it, it's a fine balance. Um, over the last few years, it's been very clear the 
issue areas that have a lot of momentum behind them. And so we want to help fuel that momentum. Um, so many of these grassroots movements um, are all equally extremely important, but they don't necessarily have the public support behind them. Um, so when March for Our Lives happened, for instance, or when the Women's March happened, it was a very clear moment when we knew the whole world was going to be watching and we knew that millions of people around the world were going to show up in the streets and participate. And so we wanted to help fuel those moments and also create really strong visuals from the communities most directly impacted by these issue areas. Well, you did create incredibly strong visuals, uh, many of which have become pretty well known. I actually have an amplifier poster from the Women's March created by Shepard Ferry uh, hanging here in my studio. Uh, So in terms of distribution, how do you get these pieces out there? I know they're free to download, um, but I know that for the We the People campaign, images that you created reached millions of people across the U.S. and also in 195 countries across the world. So how did you do that? Magic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's really part of what, what we do and what we specialize in. Um, you know, Aaron comes from a background of reaching millions of people with his journalism, and I come from a background of community organizing and bringing together hundreds of thousands of people um, to collectively come together through art and public space. And so, you know, not only are we working and trusting our artists to be able to take these complex messages and distill them into something beautiful and easily digestible um, within a second, which is more in the history of propaganda art. Um, but then we come in and we really work with our partners to understand who is it that they want these messages to reach. And then we come up with a plan for how we can reach those people um, with these messages. And so that's that's part of what Amplifier does is we come up with creative distribution strategies that are going to be unique for the, for the movement and for the moment. And so we do everything from commissioning the artwork to then doing storytelling and social media strategy of how to share the artwork and how to share the stories out through the world. And then we really believe in the power of analog art. We really believe that if you hold an image in front of you, if you hang it in your windows, if you put it up in your local businesses, that that power of really reclaiming our visual landscape can't be underestimated. Um, even just, you know, it's, it's as easy as printing off the artwork from our website and then staple gunning it to a power you know, a power line on your street. And then how many people are going to walk past that artwork every day? It's in front of their face and then it becomes a part of their unconscious. It becomes a part of their consciousness. And so that's something that we really do believe in the power of analog art, just just as much as digital campaign strategies. Well, call me old fashioned. Um, I do, too. Uh, I love. Yeah. Yeah. I love being able to see art in in the public space. I think it has uh, enormous power that way. Um, When you commission the work for these artists, and you say that you work with a number of, of partners, how is the work funded? So we're still coming up with that model. Um, Again, it's a a constant um, experimentation process because Aaron and I really come from art backgrounds. um, And and so we're new to the nonprofit world. And it's really important for us to create a really healthy ecosystem in which this nonprofit 
um, is sustainable so that we don't kind of fall into the traps that a lot of nonprofits have historically fallen into. Um, so right now we have, um, we, we have some foundation grants. Um, so some people who want to support our work at that level. And then we also have an art machine that's really fueling itself. So when we commission artwork, we put it up on our website and people can donate to our organization and receive artwork in return. And all of that money then goes back to us being able to build these campaigns pro bono for grassroots organizations and to be able to give this artwork out for free to underserved communities. Um, so we really are trying to create this art, yeah, this art machine that fuels itself. And really, we, we want to be people powered. We don't want to have to have our programming dictated by um, foundations 100%. And so we're really looking at how can we be a public service? Um, how can we meet the needs of the public? And really, um, that is where we, the people, came from, and that's where we, the future, came from. Is we're really constantly looking at, you know, what are what is being asked of us? Who's reaching out to us? What what do people need in this moment? And then how can we be of service and respond to that need in, in the best way that we can with the tools and the resources that we have? Yeah, I mean, you guys are doing uh, amazing work, uh, particularly with the the We the Future campaign, which, uh, as I mentioned, just launched on the 18th. And you've created some beautiful artwork and learning materials that are going to be distributed to teachers across America to help children learn about social justice issues. Uh, Another need that is on a lot of people's minds right now is the November election, which is shaping up to be probably the most consequential of our lifetimes. Uh, Can you you talk about what Amplifier is doing in support of the November election? Yeah, um, so we really believe that everything that we're doing right now is civic engagement, and it's all about um, empowering one another to build community and be able to better navigate this ambiguity that we find ourselves in. Um, And so we've also been partnering with the Women's March um, and Rock the Vote and Citizen University and Seattle City Club and pretty much all of our partners. What what we realized going into this kind of next stage after We the People was everyone was really focused on the elections and on civic engagement and voting participation, whether it was through a climate lens or a ending gun violence lens or a women's rights lens um, or criminal justice reform lens. And so we partnered with the Women's March and a dozen of other um, partners all across the country to host an open call for art around the slogan, Power to the Polls. And we had nearly 3,000 submissions, which... um, uh, yeah, when we brought together a dozen curators from many different backgrounds and across the United States, and I curated that down to 50 artworks. And those artworks are all intended to amplify power to the polls and amplify the social movements that are joining forces across this country right now to bring power to the polls. And so we have 50 artworks on our website right now that um, can be don- uh, can be downloaded and printed out in your local community. And so that is one campaign that we're working on. But we've also been collaborating with a lot of climate justice groups around the country who are wanting to amplify the voices of the intersections between environmental justice and social justice. So 
yeah, we're kind of nonstop focused on <laughs> yeah. how to shift culture around voting because it really does come down to culture and art and music and celebrity culture all impacts the cultural environment around us and our culture really impacts how we show up in the world. And so we feel like if we can bring these visuals into a place that shifts culture, it's ultimately going to shift how people vote. Yeah, yeah, it shifts the the public uh, discussion, and it yet yeah, ultimately will shift our electoral politics accordingly, and that is the ideal. Yeah. Well, I will just mention again that uh, the website is amplifier.org, where you can check out the artwork, and as Cleo says, you can also download the artwork for yourself for free. Well, Cleo Barnett, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, and uh, thanks for joining us on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, and if there's anything we can do, to support your work or if any of your viewers um, are a part of social movements, please feel free to reach out to us. We are here as a resource to support your work. And next, we check in with Indivisible Washington's 8th Research Team Leader Stephen Wilhelm to talk about this week's calls to action. Hello, Stephen. Good morning, Stephen. How are you doing? I'm good, man. Uh, so the first item is the story that is dominating the news around the Kavanaugh nomination. As pretty much everybody listening knows, over the weekend, a woman named Dr. Christine Blasey Ford has stepped forward to allege that Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her at a party when they were both in high school. And in light of this, the vote to confirm him, which was supposed to happen on Thursday, has been scuttled. And there are currently Senate hearings scheduled for Monday although Dr. Ford has called for an FBI investigation before having those hearings. And so it's kind of up in the air right now. So what are we asking members to do here, Uh, in addition to calling both of our senators to encourage them to push for a full investigation? What else can people be doing? Yeah, first, Stefan, let me highlight. uh, We might think that, gee, we've made 100 calls. Our senators have heard from us enough. But coincidentally, um, I just received an email from Indivisible National this morning, and they're still encouraging folks to keep calling their senators. They have also, if anybody's interested, have posted a new um, 46-second video that they're encouraging people to share on Twitter and Facebook. And then their third of the three steps is go back to the first step and call your senator. So clearly, Indivisible National thinks there's a lot of value in continuing to call your senator senators. And I know when I called both of ours this morning, they, they both went to voicemail. So hopefully that's a, a good sign that uh, people are really loading up the phone banks. Um, the other thing that uh, your listeners can do kind of along the same lines once they've called their own senators is NARAL has got a great uh, hub dialer that folks can use to call uh, swing voters in states where senators haven't um, made a firm pronouncement about how they're going to vote. So once you've called your senator, use the NARAL phone banking tool to um, call voters in in other states and have them connect with their senators and and pass the same message on to their senators. Yeah, absolutely. And I will have a link for that on indivisiblepodcast.org. And I'll also have a link to the uh, video that National Indivisible put out. Uh, And then also, and this is tangentially related to the Kavanaugh story, uh, the Violence Against Women Act is set to expire on September 30th. Uh, Tell us what this law does, what it's historically done, and then what people can do to keep it alive. 
Yeah, this is a really important law, uh, which uh, grants law enforcement uh, training, provides victim services and, and prevention efforts. Um, and the original law created the National Domestic uh, Violence Hotline. I would imagine some of your members have seen commercials on TV uh, advertising that sure. number. Um, the new 2018 reauthorization bill would also provide law enforcement with uh, more tools to remove firearms from domestic abusers who aren't legally allowed to own them. Um, you might have heard uh, some of our Washington uh, uh, congressional representative candidates talking about EPOs, emergency yeah. protective orders. So this would um, provide some of that. Um, and then gun violence groups say that that's a really critical area of focus is firearms are the most commonly used weapons in, in domestic violence homicides. And the legislation also would dramatically increase funding for uh, local rape prevention efforts and, and offers improved protection for domestic violence victims living in, in public housing. Um, the, those victims would be shielded from eviction, for example, if uh, their abusers break the law, and uh, the victims would be allowed to transfer apartments to seek safety without, without penalty. So it's a really important law historically, and, and these uh, new improvements would, would only serve um, to enhance its, its uh, efficacy. Uh, there's a little bit of good news on the legislative front there. So in the most recent bill that the Senate passed to um, authorize um, the defense budget and also the health, education, and labor uh, budget, the minibus it's called, also included uh, provisions to um, – it's a, a continuing resolution, as it were, for the rest of the government, um, and this reauthorization act would be included as part of that continuing resolution. So that bill has passed the Senate, a very different version passed the House uh, back in June, and so the House would need to agree with the Senate version um, that's been passed. So um, folks can call their representatives now and ask them to um, get on board with that Senate version of um, uh, its uh, HR 6175 is the minibus, and um, we will definitely also have a, a, a take action uh, uh, that we write up for that for next week. But for this week, if folks want to call their representative and ask them to approve the minibus for defense and health education and labor that includes reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act, that would be a good good action for this week. Absolutely. Uh, you know, something that came up last week was uh, the tax scam 2.0 bill uh, in which it seems like Republicans are taking one last stab at tax cuts before the November election. What can you tell us about this? Where does it stand and what can people prepare to do? You bet. In terms of where it stands right now, the House Ways and Means Committee uh, voted it out of committee, and it should come to the Senate floor next week. And just to remind your listeners um, why this is not a good bill for, for Republicans to be bringing forward, they, they are trying to persuade uh, Americans that after they passed the tax cut for the wealthy, oh, let's come back and do what we should have done the first time, which is not make the tax cuts for the middle class um, expire at least two problems with that. One, they just can't leave well enough alone, so they're, they're stepping in some new goodies um, for the wealthy as well, like um, allowing wealthy households to pass on $22 million tax-free to their heirs instead of the current bill, 
which only allows them to pass on a measly $11 million tax-free. Hmm. Um, and on top of that, one of the really serious concerns about this is um, it's got an advertised increase to the deficit of $650 billion. But that's just because of the time period that that um, is calculated for. If you actually calculate the whole um, cost of this bill, it's over three and a half trillion dollars. And again, it principally uh, helps the wealthy. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, study on this recently. Eighty-four percent of the benefit still goes to the wealthy even after the changes that they've made. This was supposed to be rocket fuel for the economy, and right. when what's happening for working-level folks is they're just seeing very small increases in their salary, just barely above inflation. Hopefully, everybody remembers that the president promised us we'd all get a $4,000 salary increase at least as a result of this uh, tax increase or tax uh, cut. I'm still waiting for my salary increase. <laughs> so. All, all he's doing, you know, the right time to do this would have been back in 2009 when the economy needed it. Now we're just uh, threatening to increase inflation um, at a time when the economy just doesn't need it as much. So wrong solution, wrong time. Um, so folks can think about um, that their Senate, their uh, representatives are on recess this week. Call your representative at their at their home office and tell them this is just the wrong solution at the wrong time, or we'll definitely put it out an action item uh, next week once uh, the House is back in session for folks to call their their representatives in Washington D.C. and tell them this is just a bad bill. Vote no. Good. Well, we'll check back in with you on that uh, as that transpires. Uh, and then, of course, I should mention that there are canvassing and phone banking efforts all over the state. Uh, I think the best way to learn about that is to go to the campaign websites for the candidates themselves. Uh, Kim Schreier, who is running in the 8th, Carolyn Long, who's running in the 3rd, and Lisa Brown, who is running in the 5th. And I will have their websites available for you on IndivisiblePodcast.org, where you can find information on how you can help. Um, I will also have a link for the Washington Democrats website where you can sign up to volunteer for phone banking and canvassing events to help candidates all across the state at every level. So, Stephen, as always, thank you for the information. We will uh, check back with you next week. Thank you, Stephen. Talk to you next week. And that's going to do it for this week's show. For links to everything that we talk about here on the show, you can go to IndivisiblePodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the show there, too. The email address for the show is IndivisiblePodcast at gmail.com, and the Twitter handle is at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., with production assistance from Cecilia Knob. Thanks again to my guests, April Ryan and Cleo Barnett. Thank you to Stephen Wilhelm. And as always, thanks to you guys for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.